Hi, my name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the Bookshop Podcast. Lexi Beach and Connie Rourke opened the Astoria Bookshop in 2013 in Western Queens, New York. While known for their well-curated shelves, they also sell signed books from local authors, puzzles, candles, soaps, bookish gifts, and their wonderful Booksellers Choice Bundles. Hi, Lexi, and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's good to have you here. You have a background in the book industry. What kind of work did you do, and how did this previous experience prepare you for opening Astoria Bookshop? Um, I started off as a temp at Simon & Schuster, and then transitioned into a full-time, a permanent position there in the sales and client communications department. So my first job was as events coordinator, working between sales reps and publicists and bookstores all over the country. And the main focus of it was coordinating the tours that publicists were planning, making sure that um, requests for the authors that were being toured were taken into consideration, um, making sure that the orders were placed and then that they actually shipped, and then following up to see how the events went. And then from there, I moved over to the publisher's office of the main adult imprint at Simon & Schuster. And I was there, again, as kind of a point person role between marketing and production and sales and um, everybody and ad promo and and everybody else uh, before leaving and going to work for a company that had a side business in digital audiobooks and managed the accounts of the publishers that we sold there. And... I wish that I could say that my career path was intentional, but it was not at all. And by chance, gave me a lot of really relevant experience for running my own bookstore. Um, Certainly that first position that was just like a job opening that came up at a time when I was trying to get into publishing, uh, coordinating author events was incredibly helpful in getting to know how other stores worked and how they communicated with publishers and what kinds of things were taken into consideration by a publisher when they were um, working with a bookstore, uh, and then getting to see the overview of the publishing process, at least on the adult side, when I was in the publisher's office was also really helpful because I could really see the life cycle of a book from acquisition through foreign rights sales and publication and marketing and, and then like backlist reprints and then working for a digital company gave me a perspective that I had that was in 2008, I think was when I moved over, that I hadn't had a ton of digital media experience at that point. And granted, like mostly what I do now isn't specifically digital, but certainly my store has a big presence online through our website and through our social media. And I think that position gave me some really useful experience there. And it's been really interesting to see how useful these jobs had been when there was no like clear path from one to the next. And it sounds like one of those jobs consisted of actually about five jobs. But I often think that's the best way to learn a business. Yep. And it's also, to be honest, a lot of how publishing works is that nobody has just one job. Even if you have one job title, you're actually doing at least three jobs because it's it's just the nature of the business now. In 2018, you wrote a Twitter thread that began, quote, Okay, bookstore friends, here is the truth. At a certain point, buying from the store you love is not going to be enough to keep it open. Capitalist landlord plus commercial real estate plus expensive city equals very bad for an inherently low margin business. End quote. Your thread brought up a lot of points that other indie bookshop owners have spoken of in interviews, in particular rising rental costs. Since that Twitter thread, have you seen any movement with rents? And has this issue garnered support from the ABA and local elected officials? I, to be honest, I don't, I haven't seen any trends in rents going down for independently owned businesses anywhere, unless that's what the market is doing. Um, but even even in a pandemic, I have occasionally gotten pitches from real estate brokers in Astoria. I'm on some list. I'm not I'm not actively looking to expand right now, but I get emails saying, oh, this space is open and I 
I see what the rent is like. And I'm like, that is, that's wild that you think somebody can afford that. Right. Especially right now. Uh, in terms of support from other groups, uh, the American Booksellers Association, I'm, I don't think that they really have the capacity to advocate for this kind of thing because most of the advocacy they do is much more on a national level. Uh, just that's the nature of the organization. And there's certainly no conversation at a national level about commercial rent stabilization or rent control. Locally here in New York City, there have started to be conversations about those things for sure. We just had last month a Democratic primary election that many, many seats at all levels of city government were up for re-election um, or up for, for new candidates coming in. And so I looked at a lot of people's platforms because there were a lot of people running for these offices. And there were some people who were talking about things like vacancy taxes that would um, encourage, I mean, from my perspective as a business owner, they would encourage landlords to rent to tenants who they might otherwise not because the tenant can't afford the rent that they think their space can command. But if they have a vacancy tax, then that incentivizes them to maybe take a slightly lower rent. And granted, I'm sure there's much more to it in the policy um, and the benefit to the city. But from my perspective, there were certainly places that I still see empty in, in the neighborhood where I live and in the neighborhood where my store is. There are places that sit empty for years because what I learned uh, after signing my own commercial lease is that in New York City, at least, their real estate taxes on a given property go up once there is a business in operation there. And so if you have a commercial lease on a building that has other tenants, like the residential tenants that live above my store, um, and that's enough to cover the commercial mortgage you have, and your the real estate taxes for this one open space are minimal, why would you rent to somebody at a slightly lower rate, even though they might have a solid plan to like build and become a steady business um, when you can wait for someone who can pay the price that you think your space commands. Um, my real estate taxes went up tenfold over the course of my first year. And that's just, that's just how it works. There's also been conversation about commercial rent stabilization and rent control that I know how a little bit about how those work for residential tenants. And hopefully they would work in a similar way to commercial tenants, because in New York City, at least commercial tenants have very little in the way of rights. It's very difficult to evict residential tenants. You have to go through a lot as a landlord. And it's not to say that it doesn't happen, but there are a lot of steps to take. Whereas commercial tenants, you don't even have the right to a habitable environment as a commercial tenant. So if there is a problem with the space that you're in, it's really on you to fix it. Um, a lot of it is spelled out specifically in your lease agreement, but like there are some clauses in my lease that would not have been legal in a residential lease, but that's just the way New York City handles. I don't know. I've never, I've never owned a store in another municipality, so I don't know what it's like anywhere else, uh, but in New York for sure. Yeah, some of the indie bookshop owners I've spoken with have suggested that it's a good idea, if you can possibly do it, to buy your building and live in the same building. But for many people who are in big cities, that's almost an impossibility unless you are extremely wealthy. Yeah. Henry Zook, who owned Book Court until they closed a number of years ago, the one time that I met him in person and I was relatively new as a bookstore owner, the advice that he gave me um, was if I had the chance to buy the space that I was in and like, no, I don't, I, I, I rent a storefront in a six story condo with hundreds of apartments. I can't buy that space. That's not an option. What are you talking about? But for a lot of bookstore owners, that becomes their retirement plan because then you own the building and you own something that can be sold to someone else, regardless of whether that's someone who wants to keep running a bookstore or just someone who wants to own a piece of property. Anybody who's able to do that at whatever kind of retail business you own, like absolutely more power to you. But you're right that in New York, just the way that most storefronts exist, it's not feasible at all. 
Let's talk about Queens and your neighborhood, Astoria, the demographics and your customers. And I'd like to know, is the community supportive of local businesses? Yeah, um, Astoria in specific and Queens in general are famously diverse neighborhoods. Queens is the most diverse county on the planet when you take into account languages spoken and um, countries of origin of the residents, uh, or at least countries of ancestry of the residents. Um, Astoria is really feels like a microcosm of that. Some there are a lot of neighborhoods in Queens where like Flushing is strongly Chinese and Chinese American. Jamaica uh, is very Caribbean American. Um, but Astoria really feels like a little bit of everything. And historically, it's a Greek American community, um, an Italian American, but there are also immigrant communities from Egypt and Bosnia and Ireland and Eastern Europe and all over Latin America. It goes across pretty much every demographic. It's a very mixed income community. There's a big Spanish-speaking population. Uh, that's another thing in my own personal experience that I was not expecting to be useful was that I majored in Spanish in college. I studied Hispanic literature. And now I run a bookstore and occasionally have transactions entirely in Spanish. And, and I feel comfortable buying books in Spanish because I can actually see what they are. And in some cases, I've, I read them for class. Something else from your past that's come in handy. Yeah. Author Luke Eplin is my next guest and a local resident, and it was through him I met you. So does Astoria carry and support many local authors? And what upcoming author events do you have scheduled in the bookshop? Um, We do have a lot of authors who live in the neighborhood. Um, We love being able to have local authors in part because uh, bookstores and authors and libraries and writers of all kinds are and illustrators are all part of the same literary community and um, we can all benefit from each other and it's just really nice to know who the local authors are and when they we love when they come and introduce themselves and in fact you can go onto our website and there's a tab that says signed books that has a list of really just it's only a portion of the authors who live in the neighborhood whose books we have but the authors who we've like made formal agreements with that we've stocked signed books by them. And if you want a personalized copy, um, it might take a little while depending on their schedule, but um, it's certainly uh, a thing that we love to be able to offer. I don't even have Luke's book on that list officially, but um, that's because it's been on our bestseller shelf and on our front table since it came out. So yeah, I am friends with Luke as well as being a a neighbor of his. uh, And so it's been really great to watch the process of his book go from being sold to the process of being written and then finally be out in the world and be received so well by so many fantastic reviews all over. Yeah, it sure has. It's a wonderful book. And what about your events? Oh, in terms of events that we have coming up, my events coordinator would be upset with me if I didn't call out a few things. Um, uh, We do have a bunch of things on the calendar for July. We are still doing all virtual events. Um, For the most part, they're all through Crowdcast. uh, So the list is on our website under the events tab that, and then there's a link to register for each one. And I'll make sure to put the link to your events calendar in the show notes. I love the fact that you have quite a few cooking demonstrations that coincide with the pub dates of the books. That's fun. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've been learning how to transition our events program to an online platform. And there, there are so many benefits to it, honestly, because I was looking back through some of the data on the events we've hosted over the past year. We had at least one event where we had people tuning in from five different continents. And we've had events where there are over 200 people tuned in. And my store is a thousand square feet. We, we can't have 200 people in the store. And so to be able to open up the, the experience of the conversation that these authors are having to such a wide audience and people who might not be able to access the event, whether because of geography or whether because of their own schedules or their own health or childcare or what have you, but who can tune in for an hour on a computer, that I think is a really great thing that has happened this year that hopefully we'll be able, even as we start shifting back to doing events in person eventually, that we'll be able to still tap into and learn from that experience. Yeah, I think some kind of a hybrid situation is in the future, in-store and also virtual. And simulcast, yeah. 
And speaking of the future, how do you see the future of indie bookshops? Honestly, I I don't think we're going anywhere. Like when I started working in publishing in 2003, already there was like the death knell for independent bookstores and like, oh, it's all about Borders and Barnes & Noble. And then Amazon came to much more prominence than it already was at that time. And obviously Borders does not exist anymore, much to my deep sadness. I spent many, many hours of my teen years in my local Borders. But ultimately, there's no improvement on the technology of a codex, of a physical book bound between two covers. You can make a different way to read a book, whether that's on a digital screen or an audiobook. But there's the codex technology of a bound printed book is perfect. And similarly, the experience of browsing in a physical brick and mortar bookstore is something that can't be replicated. You can call shopping online browsing, as as even I do, but it's not the same thing as walking among display tables and shelves and interacting with a person and the serendipity of going to a shelf to see if your favorite author has a new book out and then finding something that just happens to be next to it or seeing what the booksellers at that store have chosen to put on the staff picks table. A few weeks ago, when Casey McQuiston's new book, One Last Stop, was out, they came by to sign a bunch of pre-orders for it. And one of our customers came by to pick up their copy of the book while Casey was signing. And so they got to have this interaction with one of their favorite authors totally by chance. Uh, And that, like, obviously, you can't replicate that online. Even in a virtual event, you can't quite have that serendipitous experience. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, there are things that bookstores have needed to change in the past 20 years to constantly adapt to new technology and new trends and new minimum wage laws and new social media outlets. And it's not that it's not an evolving industry, but like a store, a physical store that sells books is always going to exist as long as humanity exists, as far as I'm concerned. Running running a small business, running a brick and mortar business for sure has always been a challenge and is not for the faint hearted. But I think there are challenges that we're all up for. And my friends who own bookstores and my friends who are booksellers at other places across the country, like we all share stories and share tips and we all benefit from each other's knowledge. And as we continue to do that, we just kind of raise each other's ability to meet the challenges that we're facing. And it's it's such a great industry, honestly. Yes, I'm always super impressed with the camaraderie between booksellers, not just nationally, but also on a global level. Now, I would love to hear about your booksellers. Um, my staff are the best part of my store. The business would not have survived this past year of the pandemic if not for my staff. And I, I'm not sure I would have survived. I have such a great team in place and have like my booksellers who are no longer working for me are also phenomenal. I keep in touch with a lot of them and some of them have gone on to work for publishers. Some of them have gone on to work for literary festivals uh, or writing workshops. And I've been really lucky with the team that I've had over the years. Uh, When I first started, I was a single person operation for the first year. And every time my sales and my budget have allowed me to hire another person, it has improved my store dramatically. I mean, obviously part of that is like the labor of running a bookstore takes more than one person. I don't recommend operating a bookstore by yourself, but I I don't remember most of it. I think I've blocked it out. But really what the benefit of it is that Each person brings their own perspective and their own reading tastes and their own experiences. And everybody has different skills and different inclinations. And so uh, whether it's somebody who reads poetry or somebody who reads YA or somebody who reads history um, or somebody who's really good at merchandising or somebody who's really great with kids, whatever it is, some like some of my staff are really great with social media and some of them are more comfortable doing like the physical labor of shelving and alphabetizing in the store. 
And our skill sets and our interest levels and our backgrounds really are what the store, that's what the store is. I try really hard to have a staff that reflects the diversity of Astoria and that in a store my size, honestly, it's impossible to really fulfill that because I have six people working for me right now. And there's just, there's no way that I could actually um, reflect every kind of community and identity in Astoria just with that small of a team. But um, every time I hire somebody new, I ask them what their staff picks are and what, what are the books that you love and that you evangelize for. And it brings in a different kind of diversity to what we display on tables and what we promote um, to customers and what we recommend to people. Um, and it's so interesting to see that um, like our sales patterns change every time I bring in a new person. And then the institutional knowledge changes because even if that person moves on in a year or two, I still know that like, oh, this is a great book. And this bookseller who had really great taste um, loved that book. And it might not be my taste in particular, um, but I know how. Uh, yes, exactly. And there are certainly like I, one of my, we have a, a very, very regular customer who I have become very friendly with, but she knows that she and I don't have the same reading taste at all. And so she never asks me for book recommendations, but she also knows that one of my other booksellers, their reading taste lines up pretty well. And so if, even if that bookseller isn't there, I can just tell her, oh, Barry really liked this book. And she's like, oh, okay, then great. Then I'll buy that. And my, we definitely have our regular customers learn over the years whose taste matches theirs and who they want to ask for. And they'll ask sometimes when they come in, like, oh, is Mina here today? And uh, they want to, whether it's just because they want to catch up or because they know that this particular bookseller's taste aligns with theirs. I love watching that. Yes, it's an alchemy, um, a magic of sorts. It is, yeah. The alchemy of like, making recommendations. And as we've reopened for browsing just a month ago, it's really interesting to see all of us now that we're like really working as booksellers again and making those recommendations and talking, having conversations with customers of like, okay, what kind of book are you looking for? How about this? Well, maybe what are you in the mood for? Do you, do you like contemporary or historical? And we're all like, we have all this pent up like bookseller potential energy that's just waiting for the outlet and now it's here. And so we wind up loading up customers with like, here are 10 books to consider. Um, tell me if you want more or <laughs> I can stop. I know that feeling well. <laughs> now, what is one book you'd like to see more people reading? Um, uh, I was trying to think about my answer to this. And honestly, there, there are so many books, but the one that's on my mind right now um, that just came out last month is a graphic novel called Wake. Rebecca Hall is the writer and the illustrator's name is um, Hugo Martinez is the illustrator. Um, it's the subtitle is the hidden history of women led slave revolts. The author is a historian and academic, and she was doing her thesis for her PhD on women led slave revolts and was largely being told that there weren't any, but mostly that's because as with so much African-American history, there are just gaps in the record. And there are dead ends that you go up against when you try to do this research. And so she used her training as a historian, um, but then her ability as a writer to fill in the blanks. And so it's, it's a memoir of the process of her doing this research, as well as what history she was able to find through documentation and then some speculative history, basically, of filling in those gaps. Like, for example, it is documented that there, the more women there were on the slave ships coming from West Africa, the more likely there was to be a revolt on board. So who knows if there is a cause and effect there, but it seems like that's not a hard leap to make that women were maybe involved in some of those revolts. And so she digs as much as she can into what records she can find, whether they're from the Queens County Courthouse or from Lloyd's of London 
or from libraries. And then she makes logical assumptions about what might have really happened. And it is gripping and fascinating. And as a bookstore that's based in Queens, there is a whole chapter with some Queens history that I did not know about. It's really well done. And I would love for more people to get on board with that one because it's phenomenal. And I'll make sure to put the link in the show notes for that book. And is Astoria listed with bookshop.org? Yes, we do. Well, we do our own fulfillment. Our website is fully set up for e-commerce. We ship all over the country. Um, We can ship internationally, but USPS rates for international shipping have gotten a little bit out of control this past year, in case you didn't know. So it is a little bit pricey to ship internationally, but we, we can do it if you have international listeners. So customers can order from the Astoria Bookshop website, bookshop.org. And how about IndieBound and Libro? Yes, we do have a Libro FM partnership uh, and we are, we are listed on, you can find us on IndieBound. And Lexi, where can people find Astoria Bookshop? Yes, our physical address is 31-29 31st Street. It's got funny Queens addresses with the dashes. Uh, in Astoria, New York, uh, 11106. We're between. We're under the N train between Broadway and 31st Avenue. And you can find us online at astoriabookshop.com. And then on social media, we are at Astoria Bookshop pretty much everywhere. Lexi, thank you so much for taking time out from your busy day and being on the show. Thank you, Mandy, for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for, uh, for talking to Luke as well. And I've loved seeing the attention that he's gotten for his work that he worked so hard on. If you're enjoying the Bookshop podcast, and I sure hope you are, here are a few ways you can support the ongoing episodes. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review, and share the link with family and friends and on social media. You can also support me by going to thebookshoppodcast.buzzsprout.com, click on the small orange heart at the top right-hand corner of the page, and donate using PayPal. Thanks in advance. Now, on with the second half of the show. Luke Eplin is the author of Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. Luke's writing has appeared online in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Slate, The Daily Beast, and The Paris Review Daily. Born and raised in rural Illinois, Luke now lives in Queens. Hi, Luke, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. My absolute pleasure. And first up, congratulations on the release of your book, Our Team. I'd love to hear your synopsis of the book. Well, Our Team traces four different individuals from the uh, 1940s primarily. Um, You've got two Black individuals and two white individuals. um, And each one of them was sort of integral to the integration experience that was happening at that time. And I think that they each represent a different facet of integration. You've got Bill Veck, who is the white owner of the Cleveland Indians, who has very progressive views in terms of integration. He recognizes the great skills and talents of players in the Negro Leagues at that time and is sort of on the forefront of integrating his club. You've got Bob Feller, who is this superstar pitcher for the Cleveland Indians, who comes from rural uh, uh, America and holds perhaps a bit more traditionalist views about integration. It's not that he's necessarily uh, a racist. He just uh, is is a little uncertain about uh, the integration process coming uh, going forward. And then you've got Larry Doby and Satchel Page, two players from the Negro League. Satchel Page is this um, basically mythical pitcher uh, by, the, by the 1940s who um, is so popular in the Negro Leagues that he's even sort of crossed over into the more mainstream presses and things like that. Even white fans know who he is. Um, He is considered to be a prime candidate for integration, but by the time it actually happens, he's kind of a little bit too old. Then you've got Larry Doby, who's 17 years younger, and he represents uh, sort of the new uh, the new star that is coming up and is a perfect age for integration to happen. So you've got two generations there in Page and Doby. So yeah, it's, it kind of revolves around those four individuals and how they come together on the Cleveland Indians. 
It's a wonderful story. And before I forget, I want to comment on how much I love the cover. It's gorgeous. Now, I'm Australian, and I'm not going to pretend I know about or understand baseball. I have two sons and a husband who are avid Dodger fans. When I ask my husband what it is about baseball that he loves so much, he just tears up. And I remember in 1988, he did a headstand in our living room in the hopes of helping Kirk Gibson with his home run. (laughs) Was that some sort of superstitious thing that he was doing? Yes. He really believed that he had to do something to help him get that home run. (laughs) Right. My 26-year-old says that what he loves most about the game is the diversity, how you can have a 280-pound guy from Iowa and a speed demon from Cuba on the same team, plus the best player going is from Japan. It's such a varied sport. Now, his older brother says it's a game you can go to or watch with friends and talk about life. So, as a journalist, author, and baseball fan, what do you think it is about baseball that brings the country together. Yeah, well, it's it, it is kind of a uniquely American game, and so it's uh, yeah, and it's got sort of imported around the world to Japan and Korea and all these other sorts of places. And um, I've heard a lot of people that don't grow up to be baseball fans to sort of try to watch it and say that it's it's boring. There's not enough action. It doesn't flow with, with the pace that a lot of the more popular sports nowadays do, whether that's basketball or soccer. Um, or even American football does. Um, but I mean, I think that the, the the beauty of baseball comes in between the action. I mean, there's certainly something to be said about sort of the strategy of the the sort of pitcher deciding where to place the ball and the batter trying to guess what it, what is coming next and the sort of, you know, intellectual battle between those uh, two forces. But I've always liked the fact that baseball gives you time to breathe. It allows you to sort of uh, contemplate or even sort of ramble a little bit uh, into story. Like the thing that I always loved was my father. I grew up in the Midwest and near St. Louis. My father is a huge St. Louis Cardinal fan to the, the point where he would drag around a portable radio with him everywhere he went in the summer and the Cardinals would always be on. When I graduated from high school, I gave the the speech that night. My dad had one ear open to me and one ear with a headphone in there so he could listen to the Cardinals. It's just kind of a, you know, a a way that he was doing it. And what I loved about those broadcasts, because obviously I listened to them and they formed the sort of rhythm of my childhood. But what I loved about those broadcasts more than anything else was that the announcers were storytellers. They weren't simply describing the action of the game and with like basketball, which is moving so fast that the announcers have to keep up. The action is sort of stopping and slowing that the announcers have to fill the dead air in there. And they do that by either telling stories about these pitchers and these players or sort of imagining what is going on in the sort of interstitial time between the plays, or they're kind of, uh, it's. I saw someone say that baseball announcers are like podcasters. They just kind of are in there monologuing and talking and things like that. And so I really got the sort of sense of narrative and sense of story through watching baseball. And I think that's that's why that even though it is no longer the most popular sport in the United States, it is certainly the most literary of the sports. And it's the one that you see the most sort of books and literature produced on. And I think when you bring it back to story the way you have... It makes perfect sense. I remember my husband took me to Oracle Park to listen to Vince Scully commentate his last game. And by the end of the game, a lot of the crowd had tears in their eyes. It didn't really matter who you were there to support. In the end, it was all about the story of Vince Scully. Yeah, and I think that with my book in particular, our team, um, I... I was not as interested in things like statistics. I was not as interested in even sort of individual games as much. I was interested in thinking about these uh, four individuals as characters and sort of trying to weave a narrative that, you know, placed them within a baseball realm, but sort of treated them more like figures in a novel. And because baseball is, yeah, a sport that 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 uh, that allows a lot of uh, a lot of sort of uh, narrative, I, I felt like I, I could do that quite well. You did it extremely well, and I'm excited because you're actually going to read an excerpt from the book. Thank you. 
Yeah, so I'm going to be reading uh, from chapter 14. Um, so what has happened here is that Bill Vec, who is the owner of the Indians, had bought the team in 1946. Before that, he had gone to World War II. He served in the Marines. He was sent out to the South Pacific. And a, uh, while he was there, he was in sort of an anti-aircraft unit. And while he was loading heavy shells into one of his guns, one of the shells sort of kicked back onto him and landed right on his right foot and it crushed it. And so he uh, was sent into uh, hospitals, amputation wards, things like this. And he was resisting amputation for this entire time. When he buys the Indians, his, his sort of foot is in a cast. It's a really damaged sort of thing. But he's so determined to make it through that first season, to be there with his club, that he will not get amputation. And so this is right whenever he has to sort of face reality in that offseason. The offseason came, but Bill Beck didn't slow down. His October schedule is book solid. He attended the 1946 World Series, jetted to Tucson for a quick visit with his family, and tore around northern Ohio, speaking before as many groups and organizations as he could reach. Given the pain in his right foot, it was unsustainable. On October 22nd, Vex stepped from the elevator of the Cleveland Hotel where he lived and crumpled to the ground. Unable to stand, he crawled to his suite on his hands and knees. His itinerary called for him to give a talk at a Rotary Club the next day and then host a charity football game in Massillon, a town about 60 miles south of Cleveland. He wouldn't think of canceling these engagements. Instead, he asked the secretary to set up a doctor's appointment upon his return. In the examination room, as soon as he glimpsed Vex's swollen foot, the doctor sent him away to the Cleveland Clinic. There, a bedside phone line was installed. Associates briefed him daily on all Indians' matters. From early in the morning until late at night, a steady stream of visitors traipsed through the room. Every corner was littered with baskets of flowers, fruits, and cigarettes. Even though Vec, as columnist Franklin Lewis put it, had been in, his, in more hospitals than a rented wheelchair over the past few years, it was different this time. The orthopedist laid down an ultimatum. The foot would have to come off. At 10 minutes past noon on November 1st, 1946, Beck was wheeled into an operating room where surgeons sliced off his right leg seven inches below the knee. At 4.30 that same afternoon, a call came into the sports department of the Cleveland Press. The voice on the other end was faint and sluggish. This is Bill Beck. How did those picks go today at Cincy, the, in the Indies owner, still groggy from the effects of anesthesia, asked about that morning's minor league draft. Mere hours after his amputation, Vec was already back to work. By all accounts, Vec took the loss of his foot in stride. When sports writer Hal Leibovitz visited him at the clinic after the operation, he found a bedridden Vec playing with a slinky. More than a thousand letters and 300 telegrams were piled up next to him. So many bouquets of flowers had poured in that Cleveland Forest had started to discourage callers from placing orders. Vec shrugged at the attention. I said there would be changes made and players cut right and left when I bought the Indians last summer. And what happens? I'm the one who winds up getting cut. But it could have been worse. Bob Feller's right arm, for instance. I'd rather give a leg to the Indians than have anything happen to Bob's pitching arm. 17 days after his surgery, Vec was discharged from the hospital. A truck was needed to haul away the mounds of gifts that accumulated in his room. Two months later, he was fitted for an artificial leg at the J.E. Hanger Company in downtown Pittsburgh. The one he chose was carved from English willow and fastened on with brown leather straps. After attaching the wooden limb, Beck took a few uncertain strides forward. Then, according to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, a cocky grin spread over Beck's face. Soon, he began strutting up and down the store corridors. Take it easy, Bill, one of the clerks pleaded. A fellow shouldn't bite off more than he can chew at first. Depends on how big his mouth is, Beck shot back. And with a flourish, he swung his new right leg high like a dancer in a chorus line. Being rid of the crutches on which he'd hobbled about for the better part of two years was cause for celebration. His custom-tailored wooden leg was slated to arrive in Cleveland in late January. Vex sent out invitations to a back-on-my-feet dance scheduled for the day of its arrival. On that evening of January 28th, more than 300 guests filled the glamorous Vogue ballroom in Cleveland's Hollanden Hotel. Vex didn't hold back. He danced waltzes and roombas, foxtrots and sambas, whatever the Sammy Watkins orchestra threw at him. After a while, Blood started to trickle down the wooden appendage that had been delivered only hours earlier, leaking onto the dance floor. If he was in pain, Vec didn't let on until the last guest had retired. Then he limped to the elevator and collapsed upon reaching his floor. Just as he'd done three months earlier, he crawled on his hands and knees to his room. 
There, as Beck later wrote in his autobiography, he discovered that the strain of dancing has, had rubbed his tender stump raw and the blood in drying had glued it solidly to the wooden leg. He had to soak for hours in a hot bath before the prosthetic unstuck itself from his stump. Afterward, according to Franklin Lewis, Beck writhed in bed while ripping pains tore at the flesh of his leg. That's one heck of a story. He was really something, <laughs> Bill Beck. <laughs> and dedicated. Yeah, I think that these sorts of men coming back from the war like they did, um, particularly one that was as injured as, as Beck was at that time, really wanted to demonstrate a sort of strength. And so him sort of throwing that dance, the day that he got his, his wooden leg, it had to kind of go out to be custom fit. And then it came to him in Cleveland. And as soon as it came, he was on there dancing on it. Like it was a way of sort of showing that I may have lost my leg and I may be injured, but this is not stopping me. This is not slowing me down like forward. Oh, and so, yeah, it was it's symbolic what he did. And what a role model for the team. I'm sure his efforts must have inspired them. Yeah. And I don't know how much you've gone into it, but um, and not to spoil a lot, but the Indians, you know, make it to the World Series in 1948. So between that time when Bill Beck first loses his leg in the winter of 1946 and 1948, he would have to go back into surgery twice to get sort of more parts of his leg shaved off because he was he was sort of using his prosthetic so frequently that the the sort of part of his leg was getting worn down and so they would just have to sort of continually shave it and that would happen for the rest of his life until eventually he lost his knee um because the the sort of shaving went up so far and then once that happened his, you know, uh, he wasn't as mobile as he once was. And so his life is sort of a, you know, this combination of just, just recklessly almost going forward while losing more and more leg. If you were writing a fictional character, I think you'd find it hard to come up with a better character than that. I can see how the story of these four men inspired you to write the whole book. In an article for the Daily Beast 2013, you wrote an, uh, an article that was titled The Idiot's Guide to Writing a Baseball Book. <laughs> you wrote, quote, Never fear, there's still a surefire path for securing a book deal. Simply pick a year, any year, really, and make a case for why that baseball season stands out from all others. Follow one of the templates below and you'll ink a deal in no time. Declare your chosen year the best in baseball history. The greatest ever. Group together a bunch of years, dub them a golden era, connect the chosen year to your childhood, layer thickly with nostalgia, link your chosen season with larger social changes. End quote. Did you draw from your own article? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that article just came from me imagining like I, I knew that I wanted to do something long, longer. I wasn't sure it was going to be baseball. And so I, I was reading a lot of baseball books and I was just kind of like thinking about the inspirations that might've driven some of these authors. And I saw like so many tropes being played out um, in terms of just, let's just do a biography of a year, whether it's 1948, 1984, whatever, and just kind of declaring this the most exciting year ever. and. I definitely tried not to do that. In fact, whenever somebody said to me, why did you decide to write about the 1948 Indians? I said, I didn't. I wrote about four characters who, who converged on the 1948 Indians. Like, there is a difference. Um, I never used the word I in the book, so I don't connect it to my childhood. Um, nostalgia, I wasn't alive during that time, so I, it's hard for me to do that. Larger social changes, I mean, guilty as charged, um, it, but it's very hard to write a book about integration without, you know, bringing those in. The sort of germ of this book for me came from my grandfather, who um, grew up near St. Louis. He was sort of partially deaf, and so he uh, did not serve in World War II. Instead, he worked in an airport factory in St. or an airplane factory in St. Louis. And at that time, St. Louis had two different major league clubs, the Cardinals, which are still there, and then a team called the St. Louis Browns, which left for Baltimore in the 50s. My grandpa was a huge Browns fan. He used to, after his shifts in the war, he would sort of pop streetcars and go to the Browns games. 
And so I, the only thing that I really knew about those Browns teams was that Bill Veck was the owner, the last owner of the St. Louis Browns. It's the team he bought after he sold the Cleveland Indians in 1949. And so my agent and I had decided that we were going to try to write something about Bill Veck on the Browns. And that would have had the personal connection that I could have related back to my grandpa. It was, it's hard because the Browns don't exist. People don't really know a lot about them. So I didn't really know where to start. So I decided that I was just going to research Bill Beck's earlier life. I went into the New York Public Library. I sort of took out large volumes of the Sporting News, um, which is a periodical back then that was only dedicated to baseball. And I decided to look at his Indians years, 1946 and 1949. And I read all of these copies, almost like a novel. Then as I was reading them, I kept seeing these other names come up, Bob Feller, Satchel Page, Larry Doby. And the eureka moment was just simply noticing how neatly these four characters were in tension with each other, played off of each other, and then sort of came together. Um, and I thought to myself that not only like could you tell sort of an alternate story of integration than the one we normally hear about the Brooklyn Dodgers and Jackie Robinson, but you could make this story read like a novel. Like it, it could be different than just let's go through a season or let's, you know, talk about some great games or something like that. You could almost like, almost like that excerpt that I just read, you could make it really dramatic because of the sort of things that these characters are going through. And so um, it was almost like it, once I, I realized that the whole sort of thing just laid out in front of me. And if, we just look at that one section that you wrote. It's a very visual book. It's a book about relationships. And that's key in any good story. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So how was your journey from finished manuscript to agent to publishing deal? It was hard. Um, I, uh, I, I have a full-time job. I work at Penguin Random House um, in their managing editorial department. So I'm around books all the time. I was writing articles in my free time. I was managing to place them in some pretty good places. Um, I did have an article in The New Yorker uh, about baseball. My, my now agent read it and got in contact with me and asked me if I wanted to write a book on baseball. And as you know, I was sort of thinking about it. And so we did come up with our idea and it took me a while to get to the Indians idea. Um, once the sort of contract was signed and I was, I was ready to go, I realized the enormity of what was before me. Because I think the longest piece I'd ever written was maybe 5,000 words for a magazine. And there's a tremendous difference between 5,000 words and 110,000 words, which this book ended up being. And so I had to learn the hard way how to do it. I think that the final draft that I did uh, was around 200,000 words. Um, so we ended up cutting close to half of that. And it was just me trying to figure out where the story was. I also had to learn how to do research. I hadn't, you know, I'd done some for my articles and things like that, but I, I hadn't really dove deep into archives yet. So. And did you enjoy that part of the process? Oh, I loved it. It was the best. Yeah, I read so many newspapers just in the microfilm. And in fact, I think I enjoyed that more than the writing because it's the process of discovery. I am not from Cleveland. I, I'm not an Indians fan. I didn't grow up hearing these stories. And so whenever I would find out information about one of my characters or something that was happening at this time, it was exciting. It was, it was like I was learning this and just so thrilled about what I was going to be able to include in the book. The writing itself was just... I mean, it was it was just a it, it was a real tough time to find the actual narrative. So it you know it probably two years of research, then two years of writing, one year of editing production. And this was while you were working full time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most authors I know and people I've interviewed depend on multiple streams of income, and it takes a huge commitment to research and write a book. Yeah, and you have to make sacrifices. Like I did move I did move to Cleveland because there are several defunct newspapers that don't exist anymore but uh, were in Cleveland during the 1940s. They don't exist online. You can't just sort of get those archives. They're not in where I live in New York City. They're not in the libraries here, so I did have to physically go there. So I did end up quitting my job and uh, I wasn't able to get the time off. Um, so I went to Cleveland and I lived there for a while and sort of got all the necessary research and then came back here and found another job. 
So you do have to sort of be prepared, you know, if you want to do a nonfiction book like this that is very heavily researched, um, you're going to have to travel and you're going to have to figure out a way to make that work. So is there another book in the wings or are you writing articles? I am. Yeah, I just had a piece in the Washington Post on uh, on yeah on Larry Doby, who uh, is one of the characters in my book. So I'm writing short pieces now. But um, to be honest, I uh, I am so entranced with baseball that you know I, I would love to write about it for the rest of my life. But I just don't know if I can find a better story than this one. Like I really did think while I was writing this book that. The characters were so um, rich and the this scenario with this sort of World War II as the backdrop, integration as the backdrop, sort of post-war America was also so rich and varied and dramatic that I just don't know if I'd be ever able to ever find something this, this great. So I might move on to uh, another sport, maybe basketball, which I also love. So I am sort of poking around there and seeing what I can find. I really enjoy interviewing journalists because not only do they write great stories, but they also are not afraid to jump at a moment's notice and go find a story. I mean, it's it, the sort of beauty of it is that I guess that my own version of that would be, as I said, I, I know I knew nothing about Cleveland. I had no interest in even really going there. Um, it wasn't a city that that called my attention. It wasn't something that I purposely chose. And, uh, you know, Cleveland sort of has a reputation of, of being a little boring or uh, sort of uh, maybe not as exciting as some of the more eastern cities that surround it. But once I got there and once I sort of met the people that um, that would help me and that I could do interviews with, I just fell in love with the place. It has a tremendously rich history. And it is what I realized was that I was lucky that my book doesn't take place in, say, New York or Boston or something like that, places where a lot of baseball books are set, because then I would be competing against sort of the tens and twenties of books that are coming out each year about these places, along with the hundreds of books that have been published about them just probably within the last decade. But the fact that this book took place in Cleveland, which is ground that is not as well trod by certain people, um, people were really excited to sort of hear sort of a story that they might not have known in a locale that they might not have always thought about. And Cleveland really embraced me. Um, I, I can't believe it. Uh, people have been calling me a, a sort of a, honorary Clevelander, which um, I just never uh, imagined that it ever be associated with that place. And now it is just sort of deep in, in my, my being. That's a story within a story right there. And there are some excellent indie bookshops in Cleveland. Now back to baseball, any thoughts on the new name for the Cleveland team? Well, I, I do support the, the name change. And um, the the Negro League team that used to be in Cleveland was called the Cleveland Buckeyes. They were a great team, and I wish that they could they could they could adapt that name. But there is a, a very famous basketball team in Ohio called the Ohio State Buckeyes. So I just I don't know if that would work to have two Buckeyes um, there. So my book takes place in 1948 mainly, and. Cleveland used to have this gigantic stadium. It was the biggest in Major League Baseball. It held close to 80,000 people. They built it kind of to attract things like World's Fairs and, you know, make Cleveland a sort of uh, destination to go to. Um, and it, uh, you know, during the time that I'm writing about, Bill Beck, the Cleveland owner, has excited the Indians fans to such an extent that there's 70 to 80,000 people coming out to the games. And so there is a sort of strain of people that want the, the new name to be the Municipals because the stadium was called Municipal Stadium. And so it sort of connects to that sort of stadium, which has all that great history um, of the franchise during that time. So... Um, you know, personally, I would like something along those lines that connected it to the period that I wrote about. That sounds perfect. Now, what is one book, apart from your own, which everybody should run out and buy because it's a wonderful story? What's one book you'd like to see more people reading? Well, I'll tell you what, um, 
a lot of people have asked me what baseball books inspired me. And I can give a long list of them. And at the top of that would be a book by David Halberstam called October 1964, which is a great book. But that is not the book that I'm going to recommend. I think the book that most inspired my own book and what I learned the most about was a book by a journalist called Mark Harris. He mainly writes for New York Magazine. He writes about the movies. And it's called Pictures at a Revolution. It was published maybe a decade ago by Penguin Press. Um, and so what he does is he takes the year 1967 and looks at the five best picture nominations from the Oscars race that year. And you've got movies like The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, In the Heat of the Night, Bonnie and Clyde, and then another movie called Dr. Doolittle. And so you have there in 1967 five movies that represent a different way that the culture is changing or not changing. So you've got sort of two movies about race. You've got a movie within The Graduate about sort of the booming or upcoming counterculture in the 1960s with the youth, Bonnie and Clyde. You've got sort of this idea of the more sort of violent turn that Hollywood is about to take. You've got Dr. Doolittle, which is about sort of the old studio system. That is kind of the throwback to the old movie. So that represents the more traditionalist thing. But what really inspired that was he not only sort of just talks about those movies and all, you know, explains their importance. He he tells that year and that sort of the sort of process of making those movies as though it were a novel, focusing on the main characters that helped to make those movies, that helped Hollywood sort of change in that way. And then he intertwines them. So you don't have like a chapter about The Graduate, a chapter about In the Heat of the Night. It's like they're sort of shifting and these movies are sort of swirling together. So you get more of a sort of picture of Hollywood as a whole through these movies. And that is what I wanted to do with my book. You've got these four characters. They're not separate. They're sort of colliding or sort of in the vicinity of each other for a long time until the very end, they come together on the Indians. And so that that really helps me think about structure and it helped me think about how do you take something with multiple characters and stories and weave those together. And it's just masterful. Mark Harris is a, is a great, great writer. That sounds like one I would love to read. When I interview people, I try to find connections, and I found ours. In the 80s, I was a costume designer in LA, and I arrived home one day. And of course, back then in the 80s and 90s, we used uh, pages, and we had message machines, phone message machines. And I came home one day and pressed play. The light was flashing. And there was a message with this man in a husky voice, and it was Tom Waits asking if I had some time to work with him. And I noticed that you wrote a couple of articles about Tom Waits. So that's our connection. And Tom Waits was a gentleman, a lovely man. When you wrote those articles, was that something of your choosing? Or were you contracted to write those particular articles? Yeah, they were both topics that were that were given to me. But I I very eagerly leapt to them. Uh, he is somebody who uh, who is an inspiration to me, not necessarily someone that I would like to emulate because he's such a singular figure, but the way that he tells stories in his songs, I think are so brilliant. He not only sort of gives you good characters, but he gives you good settings. He sort of places them in, in locales. And his language is just this great sort of meshing of sort of contemporary turns of phrases with very old timey words and sounds. And I've always admired the, the sort of career that he built for himself with a very non-traditional voice and very non-traditional sounds but really sort of forging into new territories, constantly morphing, changing, things like this. I tried to interview him several times, but he just doesn't take well to interviews and always turns it down. But uh, it's, it's on my bucket list to one day talk to him. Well, I hope you do. He is a gentleman and a lovely, lovely man. And my gosh, so creative. You know, you've written a lot of really good articles, but there was one that just had me in tears. And in a good way. It was a beautiful article, sad, but very touching and beautifully written. It was in the New Yorker, I think it was in 2010, Baldomero Lilo's Miners, the story of a father taking his eight-year-old boy to the mines for the first time. And when the son cries out for his mother, the dejected miner ties the child to a bolt in the wall and reflects that the mine never freed those whom it had caught. It seemed like you had a connection to this story. Yeah, and I, I'd lived in, in Chile for for a while, probably 
two years total or something like that. And uh, I have a great connection to that, that country. Um, and so uh, whenever the mining that was in connection to the, um, the people that got trapped in the mine, the mines in, in, in Chile. And, uh, and I mean, mining is, is so prevalent in, in Chile that there, there have been many literary uh, works based on, on mining. So I just wanted to call attention to this one guy who I don't believe has ever been translated into English. Uh, his name is Aldemiro Lillo, and uh, he is, he's beautiful. I mean, his stories are great. They're almost like little Raven Carver stories. They're lovely. Luke, thank you so much for taking time out and being a guest on the show. I really appreciate it, and all the best with our team. And I look forward to reading more of your work. Oh, thank you. This was great. Thank you. Make sure to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at The Bookshop Podcast to learn more about upcoming speaking engagements, my books, and my Art of Observing workshops. Go to my website at mandyjacksonbeverly.com. You can sign up for my newsletter or contact me directly at mandy at cricketpublishing.org and follow me on social media at Mandy Jackson Beverly. Read global, buy local, support your local indie bookshop. <laughs>